Hello and welcome back to WA Real. I'm your host, Bryn Edwards. WA Real brings you real and authentic stories from fascinating people here in Western Australia. Stories to inspire and guide you to take action to be all you can be. In our super fast world of convenience food, whether it's either the huge variety of food on offer in supermarkets or the meals prepared that we grab for breakfast or lunch while at work, have you ever stopped to consider what happens to all the food that isn't bought? Well, that's exactly what today's guest deals with. Manager of Food Rescue, Julie Broad. Born and bred in WA on a biodynamic farm out in the Wheat Belt area of Three Springs, Julie has had a variety of jobs ranging from Director of Promotions for WA Lacrosse, Owner-Operator of Food Store Deli Cafe and General Manager of Perth City Farm before becoming Manager of Food Rescue. Food Rescue feeds disadvantaged people in Western Australia by rescuing perishable, fresh and nutritious food from cafes, caterers, supermarkets and wholesalers and delivering it to disadvantaged vulnerable people. Julie is is super passionate about connecting food to community and vice versa. Julie, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bryn. Cool. So I mentioned at the start there you grew up on a biodynamic farm out in the wheat belt. What what was it like growing up on a farm in Western Australia? Well, I guess I didn't know any different because, you know, that's where I started my life. Um, But what I loved, I suppose, was that pioneering spirit that my parents showed me. It was Hmm. something that I probably did take for granted until I left to go to boarding school at 12. You do look back on those experiences and just probably pinch yourself that that was part of your former life. Hmm. Hmm. But very... um, it was, yeah, it was just inspirational, really. I mean, going to from conservative or conventional farming to biodynamic farming was pretty inspiring. I mean, you so know... you that transition transitioning occurred while you were... Yeah, there. There. So it was, you know, a matter of seeing huge salt lakes, birds going, frogs going, um, the landscape changing... Because of the conventional... Uh, because of the conventional chemical farming. Mm. And then witnessing my parents, and particularly my mother, realising that there's so many blood noses that your brothers and father can have. And that she wanted to do something about it. So she went researching and her and Dad went around Australia and found this method of farming that they wanted to bring back to... They weren't the first in WA by any means, but they certainly were the first in their area... Mm. Um, very conservative um, area, of course. It's 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 typical farming, and um, yeah, implemented it. Took five years to transition. Can you explain just briefly what biodynamic <laughs> sure. farming is? It might sound very wacky to some of the listeners, but um, basically, it's a method um, of um, it's actually cow, it starts with cow manure, right. and the cow manure is pushed into cow horns. And it's buried into the ground um, for, and look, testing my memory here, but I think it's up to six months. And it's, the cow horns are opened under the ground, but towards the moon. So the force of the moon brings in an energy into the cow horn. And the, and I've forgotten the words exactly, but the, all the, the, Ingredients, which is the cow manure, is all turned into this incredible, um, it's like a dust, it's called 500. 
The 500 is all tapped out of the cow horn after the end of the period of cultivating and it's put into a um, chest, um, like a pine or you know a wooden box, and, and it's then sprayed, well actually before it's sprayed, it's put into these great big copper vats and it's got a centrifugal force that turns again with the moon and the energy is turned certain ways and then it runs into this liquid form and then it's literally sprayed through reconfigured sprayers. I mean, this is very, you know, superficial. Not not superficial, but, you know, it's it's yeah. not exact. It's But this is what, I guess, what I can remember. It's then put into the sprayers and the sprayers put on the land. And over time, what it creates is uh, increases the topsoil and it creates worm activity and it just creates a nutrient back into the land mm. and a force back into the land that that potentially is missing from the conventional from chemical use just killing 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 the soil and killing trees and birds and yes yeah it's my understanding is a lot of conventional farming is very much based on chemicals and what have you going into the plant as opposed to feeding the soil and and then letting the plant Deal, you know, that's right the, yeah yeah and biodynamic farming i guess is is very much about starting from the base which is the soil condition to get our healthy food that we get and that was a new thing then was it look it wasn't new no rudolf steiner started in germany it's been around for many mm. many 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 years i can't tell you when it started but certainly brought to australia um by a guy called alex podlinski who took it to victoria and that's where yeah. my parents found it. Awesome. Mm. Awesome. So, um, having delved into some of your story, food is obviously a, a big part of the thread of what you've done, um, probably with the exception of the lacrosse. Um, <laughs> but uh, it seems to be a, a big thing. E, where does that come from? Um, I think being the only daughter on a farming in a farming family um the roles were very defined right so the boys always went out with dad on the farm and you were the and i was the only daughter so i was expected to stay and help mum in the kitchen um so i cleaned i cooked i did all the normal girl things which was you know what women did in those days you know they were the homemakers so i got taught to to cook or was interested in cooking. Um, and my mum was really sick when I was 10 and she went to hospital for three months. And so I was cooking for the family and cooking for shearers and um, yeah, probably just never, but always connected I think through food. So I saw a big connection with the shearers enjoying our food um, or my food um, and that connection to community, which was really important in farming areas mm. is that it's not like in the city where you've just got a neighbour next door or somebody just down the street. You can be many miles away from your next door neighbour. So yes. when you come together, it's connecting through food, through community connections. Yeah. Um, and probably going to boarding school. Um, I was super, super lonely. I mean, I cried for the first three years. I hated it. And it was a really lonely time for me and I didn't realise then that that was probably part of me getting taken away from that community, even though I had a community of girls. Yes. Um, 
I didn't grow up with girls, so I didn't know how to treat girls. I didn't know how to speak to them. I didn't know how to play with them. I didn't know really much about girls at all, except for my mum. So for me, it was... I mean, that's... you know, I mean, I had friends at school and, and play dates and things like that, but certainly as a community, it was very foreign. Yeah. It's interesting, the idea that... Um that because of the disbursement of people, the community becomes even stronger. Yeah. Yet, if you have people that are very close together, community doesn't necessarily seem to be a thing. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? Yeah, and I think boarding school shaped me in so many ways because it was a really lonely place. You know, you're boarding, you're with people that you don't know, you're not with your family. Um, so there was super close proximity yeah yeah you're in dormitory with you know 15 other girls who you've never met before you get to know them i mean my best buddies are all ex-boarding school mates um today but it's it was i guess there too that i think i realized the importance and again that was food related because you know you're just dying for good for any food compared to (laughs) The, yeah, the meals you get in boarding school. Yeah, that's right. I don't remember mine, which were yeah, less than appetising. Exactly. Yes, we used to find band-aids in our custard and, you know, like really, oh, I can't tell you. It was, Indeed. yeah. And we would line up, you know, to get, which I think why I've got, um, I don't have an affection for soup kitchens. And I think part of it is that feeling of queuing up for a piece of fruit for morning tea every yes. day. For one piece of fruit, we yeah. used to queue up, and I, just, yeah. So I just, I think that's actually this is the first time I've actually said that, that I've related back to that experience is why I probably don't like soup kitchens. Seeing people today stand up, I just think now we can do better than that. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's that uh, yeah interesting correlation. Where did you first start? So um, there's there's the food aspect, there's the community aspect. Where did you first start to connect with the um, sort of disadvantaged? When did that first pop up? I think, uh, you know, I was so busy being a single parent with three children that I just did any job. Um, mm. And I was very fortunate to get to a space or time in my life where um, I had an opportunity to co-own um, a, a cafe in West Perth. So my dream was to always own a cafe. And, uh, when did that dream start? I think back in the Hilton days. Right. Um, I was given a job when I was, you know, not old enough, probably 19. Um, I just left a, a fabulously, I love this job at Jandicott Airport, and where I learned to fly, and then I decided, yeah, so I decided to... Um, yeah, anyway, long story. But um, I was out of a job, and... Um, they couldn't afford me anymore at $140 a week, I remember. And because uh, they can employ two girls for the government scheme, I think in those days it was $60 a week for one person. So they employed two people to do my role because I was costing them $140 a week. Right. So they got rid of me with all my knowledge and my interest in flying. And, and anyway, so I was out of a job and went to the Hilton. I always fancied myself working in a, in a posh hotel. So I went and banged on the door of the HR guy and I just wouldn't let up until he gave me a job. And he gave me a job as a waitress. And I thought, oh, well, that's an entrance. That's fine. I'll be a waitress. And the next thing I know, I get tapped on the shoulder to run this cafe in the Hilton. 
I'm like, I have no experience. Like, what would you be wanting me to run a cafe for? And, and they fired the lady that had been there 10 years who was like two, three times older than me. And I had staff who were all older than me. And I'm going, what is this about? Like, I'm like this 19-year-old going, I'm in charge of all these people, no idea what I'm doing. But these guys had, had faith in me and said, you know, here, you just run it. You do, do what you like. So I use my common sense and my practical background, I suppose. Um, and yeah, ran a really successful cafe. So, but it wasn't mine, you know. I, yes. I, it was yeah. And so I always dreamed of having my own cafe, and yeah, made it happen in two thousand and seven. And it was in West Perth, um, which was, I guess, at that time the hub. You know, it was a business busy, very busy, busy area. Mm. It was at the height of the mining boom. And right next door to the cafe was the Collins Street Flats. And in the Collins Street Flats were an incredible array of people, um, mostly disadvantaged and misplaced. And there was one lady that um, I used to see go past the cafe every day and she was pushing a pram. And she'd have nothing in the pram going towards the bottle shop, but coming back from the bottle shop, she'd have a cask of wine sitting in it. And she'd do this every day. And she was very dishevelled, she was very dirty, she had stains all over her clothes. And, and I didn't know if she was hungry, but I decided to invite her in. And my customers weren't that happy with that. So I invited her in at three o'clock. So the the bulk of the day was yeah. gone and and I started letting her sit down or asking her to sit inviting her to sit down and which she did and um, interestingly she came from a Dalkeith family uh, she's from a very well known West Australian name which I won't name but she incredibly became an alcoholic uh, as a young woman I'm not quite sure what triggered that um, whether she was just one of these wealthy you know, unfortunate women who had a husband that was always walking away. I'm, I'm not sure. I can't remember. But I do know that she did have children and she lost her children in those days. Right. Uh, either through a government intervention or through her hus ex-husband. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, so the pram signified the loss of her children. Right. And um, no one would talk to her because of the way she smelled or the way she looked. Um, I guess that was my aha moment was that feeling of Julie you've got something that you can give this community through food and through connection not sure how that's going to look or how you're going to do it um, and then the next thing was you know per city farm experience which was the start, I guess, of, of where I am today. Mm. How did you go from the cafe to Perth City So while I had the cafe, um, the then managers uh, of Perth City Farm actually by chance were eating in my cafe one night and they loved the way that I had all this beautiful home-cooked style food, really colourful and they asked me if I'd consult to them to open their cafe, which I agreed to. And then I ended up selling the cafe in West Perth and buying, uh, sorry, not buying, um, getting the consultancy job. 
and then they invited me to run it, which I accepted, but only for a short period because it's not what, after I sold the one in West Perth, four years of working 16 hours a day was it for me. Yeah. And for me, it was a, you know, it was an entry into Persity Farm. I think I just love that whole combination of community farm. Um, I've got an events management background back in my 20s. I used to be a wedding planner. Um, so you didn't put that on LinkedIn. No, I know. <laughs> <laughs> That's too many years ago, Brent. Right. I've got my my work history is too broad, and I yeah. figured that if you, I got the impression. I figured if you had all that, you'd be going. The skills too too complicated. <laughs> but certainly, yeah, Persity Farm was a great platform, um, and I ended up um, being a co-manager. But really, I was a general manager. I, I ran every aspect of that farm. Um, having the event management background meant that I could get the space, which is a fantastic old warehouse. Um, I certainly introduced that to people um, in the in the Perth community. Um, there was building that needed to be repairs repaired done, so I outsourced one of the buildings to a, a building training company who paid us to be in that space. Um, the garden was run by another guy who got the work for the doll programs. So young kids who were misplaced or, or needing something to do would come in and learn to grow food. And what I guess was another aha, I've had a few aha moments, but this aha moment was witnessing those people that were coming on site who hadn't been fed good food, a lot of them homeless, Coming in, learning how to grow food was one thing, and whether they engaged in, in that or not fully, you know, I don't have the stats for that, but what I do know is that they all connected to sitting down to a meal each lunchtime. And they, for me, it wasn't about them coming and taking and having a meal and leaving. They had to do the dishes. They were encouraged to come in, well, they were, in fact, asked to come in and chop food learn from our volunteer cooks how to chop food how to just engage with fresh food so all the food was taken off the farm community farm and i think my budget was 25 dollars a week and we fed sometimes up to 60 people i'd buy a loaf of bread every day beautiful um loafers bread so beautiful wood fired bread so i'd just buy that myself and the rest of it was yeah all off the farm and you know the condiments like oils and things would be bought in by the volunteers and what we learned was these guys just want to sit and talk to somebody Mm. and they'd have their hoodies over their head and they'd be sitting at the end of the table and some days they would say no I'm going over to the cafe over the road which was the health department serving chico rolls and energy drinks and goodness knows what else and that was the food they were used to eating. So their brains were not only struggling with potential addictions or potential, you know, misplacement in society, their brains weren't getting fed anything. And so for me, it was... Just rubbish. I, yeah, and, and, and I, I had, you know, part of my being is about connecting people to that good food. It's about feeding. I love feeding people. Um... And I love that connection to food always. Mm. So for me, it's um, 
you know, and that's not unlike most farming people, I think, because that's, you know, what we do. You sit down mm. as a community and... And having that connection to feeding the shearers and seeing the oh. smile on their face at a young age. Yeah. And being of service, being of useful. Yeah. Yeah. And seeing these children, and they were children. I mean, there was one young boy who I took under my wing and and he was, um, he hurt himself and um, I had to take him to the doctor and we were sitting for several hours at this doctor because it was, it was just a cut, but it was actually quite deep. And he was sitting there with me, talking to me, and he was so... Um, he opened up about his life and he was homeless, he was an addict. He was 21, he had a child and, and he stole for, for his, his, um, his drug habit. And he just couldn't get a break. Nobody believed in him mm. and I just saw this spark. And um, yeah, he, he was the hardest worker, he was amazing. and. Um, you know, he just, yeah, really joined in our community and I saw the changes in him. And in the end, he ended up working for Sophie, actually. Right. Sophie Budd, who's yeah. one of our food ambassadors. Yeah, former so, guest. So, yeah, one of your former guests. So, you know, and that was just by chance because he was involved with Foundation Housing and Sophie was doing the work down at Foundation Housing. And he somehow, him and I, she found out that I knew him mm. and... And it was so wonderful to see that, you know, he's in and out of, of his life in terms of contributing and maybe falling back on hard times, but at least he's got the window and the opportunities yeah, given to him. He's got that break. Totally. He knows that there are people that believe in him. He's just got to believe in himself. Excellent. So food rescue, for the listener who doesn't quite get it, can you explain what it does and then explain how it came about. Sure, so Food Rescue's been around since 2011 and it was founded by a lady called Jackie Jordan who saw the enormous need for fresh fruit and vegetables to be given to those people who are doing it tough. And it's, you know, it's happening around the world it's 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 not a model that's necessarily unique to food rescue at all uh it does probably parallel with second bite which is a big national organization uh we're subcontracted through second bite to operate to the coles um, stores here in perth but food rescue primarily is a conduit Uh, that's the easiest way to describe Um, picking up food that has been taken off shelves that might be blemished might be ugly might be um, slightly damaged and this is fresh food as a whole piece of fresh food or it could be in packaging so it could be cut corn could be mint in a tray Um, it could be celery packaged up I mean incessantly um, packaging uh, is now part of our life um, mm. and what we do here at Food Rescue is we all the food that comes into our store or into our warehouse is sorted and all the organic waste is put into an aerobic digester on site and then all the plastics and packaging is taken off where possible so we don't pass that over to our charities yeah. 
and then what we are we don't distribute the food to the to the individuals we pass all the food over to the charities mm. they become the distributors so the food comes from um, places like Coles Coles, Woolworths, mm -hmm. Canning Vale Markets, Growers. We've got a Narogen farmer that comes up average once a week with food that the markets just don't take from him. So he goes to the markets, they reject whatever they reject. Might be a misshapen something or it could be a, you know, imperfect cucumber and it literally ends up here. But still beautiful, still Still has the taste. same taste. Nutritious value. Just doesn't look. Just it's the look. That's pretty sad, isn't it? Very. What, what you know? What, and we'll go further into food rescue. Um, it it's sad, it, and I'm impressed with what it does. But it's sad that um, this food doesn't look quite right. Should end up. Yeah, and it's interesting because you know, with the war on waste lately uh, on the ABC, that mm. the. People are sort of blaming the supermarkets, but I have to say it's us consumers. Yes. I'm guilty. I'll put my hand up. I am guilty. I notice myself. I go to the supermarket and I can tell you, if I see a bruise something, I, I will choose the piece of fruit that's not too yeah. bruised. So I'm guilty of it. It's, it's interesting because, yeah, it, it is the supply and demand. It is. If we can continue to buy it and therefore create the demand, then the supermarkets will supply it. Um, there is a balance in there, but you know, with the convenience of going to a supermarket and everything being there and yes. present. Um, however, yeah, we, we've got to the place of, yeah, if it's blemished or what have you. I'll and you, we all want convenience. People like to run into a supermarket, get their corn cut, get their half a cabbage, get their... You know, and I, I, I do talks around the place and, and I remember talking to an elderly group and they were saying, I was saying to them, you know, we've got to say no to packaging, we've got to say no to plastics. And um, they said, oh, but we've got weak wrists so we can't cut the corn. So we like the corn being cut for us in trays. And I hadn't thought of that. Hmm. And I thought, well, there is a market. Yep. But the rest of us, we should be buying corns in their husks as a whole corn. Yeah. You know? And maybe, unfortunately, the little green grocers have gone, so they're the guys that used to cut the corn for the little, the, our elderly community. But mm. of course, you know, we don't have that offering anymore, do we? We've no. got these big monstrosities of supermarkets that are trying to fill us with every single bit of food known to man over and above what we need. Yes. And, and Regardless of season. Yeah, yeah. And, well, who knows seasons? I mean, it's, it's, it's just something that's completely gone. We, we, you know, every time I see, I think we've got, not so much at the moment, but in July, August, we've got all these grapes coming from Napa Valley. And I'm thinking, that grape has done a lot of food miles to get here. And here we are at Food Rescue having to put it in our aerobic digester because we can't pass it on. It's done its life, it's gone. But imagine that, all that food miles and all the, you know, getting in the aeroplane, getting it to the markets, getting it to the supermarkets. Supermarkets don't sell it, so then it gets picked up again by us and then it gets to our warehouse. Mm. But 
here's where it stops. Yeah. So it's, yeah, I guess because of the presence of supermarkets, we've just become almost like um, unwittingly, dare I say, addicted to mm. just going to the convenience and, and, oh, there it is, I can buy it. There it is, I can buy it. There it is, I can buy it. And how often do we actually stop and consider where's it come from? Why is it that everything looks so beautiful? Yet it has come from nature, and nature is, you know, imperfect in mm, its nature. Mm. Mm. And I think um, the supermarkets that have been designed, it is such a pain in the ass to get to a huge supermarket, a huge. I don't shop in them, but you know, the, the one or two times that I might have. I just can't believe people do that on a weekly basis. I couldn't imagine going to fight with queues and trucks and cars to get into a supermarket to then buy a trolley full of food only to do it all over again next week. I'd rather go to my little grocer shop, which I'm very fortunate, we've got peaches in South Fremantle, that I can go in there and buy my beautiful produce and not battle with, I mean, you might have to battle with a bit of traffic, but mostly it's just going into a little corner shop, which without all the packaging, if I don't, if I don't, if I choose not to have any packaging, I can have zero packaging as I leave that store. Yeah. And unfortunately, I think the big chains and the big organisations have almost encouraged this mentality of just stocking up with so much food. A lot of processed food, of course, to mm. assist people who are busy. And I get that, absolutely. Mm. Mm. So coming back to food rescue, you gather this food up, and then and then what do you do? So take it out of the packaging? Yeah, we re-box it. So every charity that we've got on our list as um, receiving our food, um, they get a beautifully prepared box for them. They might get a box of fruit, they might get a box of salad, or they might get a box of veggies. So whatever they, you know, it's a standing order generally. So someone like the Salvos, they might take 10 boxes of fruit, 10 boxes of salad, 10 boxes of veggies. That's what they get at an allocated day, allocated time, and the, the, they know what food they're getting. And this waste is this waste is predictable. Well, pretty well, pretty well. You know, it might not be exactly mm. zucchinis in the box every week yeah. or five carrots in the box every week, but it's a veggie box. Mm. So you know that you're getting a veggie box, but then it's up to the end user to know what to do with that food right. via the charities. Whether they cook, some charities cook. Uh, for their clients, some ca- some charities lay it all the food out on a big trestle for people to shop. Some yeah, so everyone, every charity we've got 120 charities that we're distributing to now, and every charity is all different. There's women's refuges, there's Aboriginal programs, there's Shalom House out in the in the Swan Valley. Um, yeah, a range. Range, range. Uh, women's refuges, obviously, there's a lot of them. Um, and, yeah, we just encourage people to, you know, because we've taken all the hard work out for them. We've taken the plastics and packaging away where we can. We tidy up fruit and veg. So if there's a fantastic cabbage, but a quarter of it is looking a bit like it's past its date, 
then we just cut in half and we pass on the good half. And the rest of it goes into our aerobic digester. Awesome. Mm. It's, uh, it sounds like a mammoth task. It is. It is, but it's... We're so fortunate we've got the most amazing volunteers. So it's all run by volunteers? There's two of us full-time, and we've got three casual drivers who go out to the long days, which is the supermarket runs, because they are long days, and they're a pretty thankless job. You're going to the back of supermarkets, manually loading up a van, three-pallet capacity van, and you're getting back here after eight, nine hours. Whereas the rest of our organisation is run um, three to four hour time slots and our volunteers do everything from admin to warehouse duties, driving, cargo carts are all run by volunteers that's in the city. What are um, they? So they're two cargo carts um, and what they're being pushed around every day by corporate volunteers and schools and they're they're picking up at closing time all the unsold food from the cafes. So it's sandwiches, wraps and rolls, food that we can get to people living in cars or people who are homeless that same night. Mm. So it's made, prepared in the, in the cafes in the morning. It's collected by our corporate volunteers or school volunteers between two and four every day on a rotational roster. Mm. And one of our volunteer drivers picks all that food up and then delivers it straight to homeless centres, refuges, by five o'clock. Awesome. Mm. So we're collecting about 50, over 50,000 items a year doing that. Tricky. Completely environmentally, you know, friendly. People are pushing the carts around. It connects corporates to our project by offering their, their, their workforce to become volunteers and they're risking food from going to landfill. So it's, and people are getting to eat beautifully prepared food that you and I would have bought for lunch. We just yeah, didn't buy it that day. Six, seven, or eight, ten dollars. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Um, how, how is this funded? <laughs> if you've got the volunteers and you've got two, you've got two workers it yourself. Yes. And, and you know we're sitting here in Belmont in a, in a warehouse. So we have um, oh, probably about 10 sponsors, major sponsors. Um, our principal partner is Alinta Energy. Uh, we're also supported by Uniting Care West. Mm. We're supported by um, engineering, a law firm, Clayton Utes, GR Engineering, Tang Technology. Right. So a whole group of people, the forum group who gave us our orca, um, Tang Technology gave us tablets, so all of our data can be put onto tablets and soon we'll be able to record, well we're already recording manually, but we want to be able to record back to all of our charities how much food we're giving them a year, mm. so that they actually are aware of our... Are you feeding back to the supermarkets how much waste you're picking up? Here? Oh, look, that's all recorded. Yeah, that's recorded. So through Second Bite, who've got the National Coles contract, they record all that. And Woolworths is recorded as well. Mm. So they record it because they've got KPIs that they have to meet. So the more food they can pass to us, the better their KPIs. Right. Is the essence. But, you know, it's 
I mean, without that food, we couldn't feed the people that we do, really. I mean, we're... This 2017, I think we rescued 670,000 kilos of food. It's a lot of food. So it equates to over 1.3 million meals. If you, if, you, if you cooked the food, that's what it would equate to. 1.3 million meals, two and a half million people mm. in Western Australia. Mm. Um, we're reaching via the charities over 12,000 people a week. How did you get involved in this? Um, I actually got a phone call from the, the then CEO of Uniting Care West. So we sit under the umbrella of um, Uniting Care West and Food Rescue was a standalone organisation and um, I'm not quite sure what actually happened um, and probably don't want to talk about it on air too much anyway, but it came under the umbrella of Uniting Care West and it's then that the CEO of Uniting Care West used to be a customer of mine um, in the cafe in West Perth and she just remembered I think probably my attitude and my attention to detail in running a pretty busy functioning restaurant or uh, cafe and um, she rang me up and said what are you doing and I said oh I'm just doing a bit of consulting at the moment and she said would you like to would you like an interesting gig is what she put to me yeah and I said can I ask what the interesting gig is? And she said, food rescue. I just jumped at it, yeah. What was it that drew you to this? Uh, I think that, you know, my why is about connecting food to community. And so I wanted to be a part of that. And I didn't know much about it, except I knew I had the energy. I knew I had the, um, the right attitude to get in there and do what I could. Um, and finding out what I've found out in the last four years has just been amazing. Uh, what could I improve on? What could what I do? What are some of the things you have learned? Um, I've learned that we've got to... I, I think rescuing food is an amazing thing and I think it should continue. Exactly what's happening out there in terms of food rescuing should continue. But what I've learned is that we've got to stop giving quite so much people have got to start being connected with receiving people have got to start with connecting with what it means for the work that is going on behind the scenes to get them that beautifully presented box to be given to them each week whether it be a family whether it be an elderly person it doesn't matter somebody needs to understand the work that's gone into getting that for them mm. and i think that respect is I think individually people respect it, but whether they know what to do with the food is still a part of my, what I want to do next, I think. Yes. You know, that, that this food is amazing food. I mean, if I was in a place where I needed to get food, I, I'm grateful that there are so many charities out there. But I think the left hand hasn't been talking with the right hand. There's a lot of people that ring me saying, Julie, I want to know what you do, how you do it. I've just got an email from Victoria today saying, I want to know what you're doing and how you're doing it. Well, how long's a piece of string? Come and live my world. Come and walk next to me for a week. Start with this podcast. Yeah, exactly. Start with this podcast. Um, it isn't for the faint-hearted in mm. terms of, I guess, your day, 
it, mm. it, it, you've got it's a very reactionary role it's not something that I could come to work and plan because I've got part of my role is I've, I've got to do fundraising I've got to bring money in to pay for that van or this building or whatever it might be and you know luckily we sit under the auspice of a big community services organisation so they help fund um, a portion of Food Rescue so does the Linda Energy um, and they're our principal partner in fact but without all the van sponsored and um, without portions of our wages sponsored how, how could we you know I mean we do a lot of volunteer hours as well I mean you have to in an organisation like this but you, it's just that, you, it's, in, it's just every day that food comes in, that food goes out, food comes in, food goes out. And some people that would maybe, yeah, just become a bit overwhelming because there's a lot of food that's uh, getting rejected. And it's getting rejected because there's no regulation. I mean, farmers are just growing food everywhere and but it's a bit of concern coming from my background that water i don't know if you know much about west australian and climate but their water is incredibly incredibly um scarce and it potentially i think we if we keep growing food the way we're growing it i'm not sure that we're yeah I don't, i'm not quite so sure what's going to happen what do we need to change i think i think people and i've had a guy contact me actually he's ex-CSRO and ex-Ag department and he wants to start a database of farmers so that the farmer at Jinjin knows how much how much he's growing in a particular type of food and so does the person down south or so does the grower out north uh, out east to have a database of what everyone's growing so that we're not the market's not just turning into this indulgent... I mean, we've had 13 pallets of spinach. Mm. Our, our cool rooms are full of spinach that's been washed, bagged and packaged. It's been rejected. It's, it's got three more days' date code and I can't give it away. So yesterday we had to ring um, a native animal rescue they came and took 20 boxes for their ducks. Mm. Um, that is painful. Not painful to feed ducks, painful that somebody's growing that food and it's come into our warehouse. It's been rejected, so they're it's not been... even making money on it, are they? Well, someone's paid for it. Mm. I'm not quite sure whether... Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Um, but all I know is I see that food and... I'm scratching to get it out of our cool rooms, ready for the next load of food that's about to come in. Today, uh, we had eight pallets of chiller items. Now, we predominantly do fresh food, but occasionally, um, through our second bite contract, we get um, we get yogurts and, yeah, some cheeses and things. And today, there was eight pallets to give us. Our capacity in our cool room is eight pallets. And I've got to have room for fresh food. So, incessant supply. Incessant supply. So, I'm ringing Food Bank, I'm ringing Oz Harvest, I'm ringing Victory Life to say, please, can you take this food? Mm. Yeah, still farmers are smashing your towels and food producers are smashing your towels. 
you know, manufacturers. I'm not sure why this one, and I won't mention the brand, but there's just one brand that it is just someone's either doesn't know how to order food in a in a big supermarket chain, or I don't know why we end up with this particular yogurt brand constantly. Pallets and pallets of it. I don't know. I don't know why we end up with it, but we we have to move it out and we have to get it to charities pretty quickly because mm. usually it is. And look, I understand thinking from a distributor's point of view, if it's only got two days date code and it gets sent to from the distribution, they're not going to send it out to a huge supermarket to have one date code in. Yep. They'd rather just give it straight to us. So I get that. Mm. Um, but my question, I suppose, is why does that food, why does it wait till two or three days before it's about to expire and gets to us? I'm, you know, I'm not sure of how that works nationally. Mm. But yeah. I suppose you've got to be thinking, yeah, well, it's great that there's this food coming in. Why is it coming in so incessantly? Yeah. But, you know, I can get my absolutely knickers in a twist about all that and I just, I've just got to let that go because I'm not going to change that. It's, it's too big for me. Yeah. So uh, I've just got to accept that. Do my best to That's coordinate that. it. Um, my colleague, Lyndon, uh, let him logistically help with all of that side of the business and um, we just do the best job we can in the time frame we've got, I think, too. Mm. What have you learned about yourself doing this job? Uh, I think I'm st- probably the one of the things I've learned is that I've I'm still not very good at leaving time for me. I put in 120 percent all the time, and I'm still not giving. There's got to be a part of my day that's for me, and I'm really really trying to um, to, to to put Julie first, but it's really difficult. It's that sort of, again, it, I, I come back to the farming background, you know. Women are just, we just give, we give, we give, we nurture. And being a mother, I suppose, it's sort of ingrained in us, that's what you do. So it's about reversing that thinking and putting Julie absolutely number one. Mm. And I think that's what I've learned the most is I'm not, still not very good at that. And I know in the cafe I couldn't do that because I was working 16 hours a day. Um... Per City Farm, again, I still didn't do it. I just, I just want to keep giving. But, you know, at the end Where of the day... Where does that come from? <sighs> I think probably from a loneliness. You know, I don't want anyone to be lonely and I think there, is a, there was a sadness and a loneliness growing up on the farm that I couldn't ever explain to anybody because... You know, my parents were really busy, really busy producing. They had 12,000 acres. Um, they cleared land to go and start what they did as, a, as an enterprise. Mum was 20. Um, Dad was 25. They worked so hard. And I don't think we ever knew any other way but to work hard. So I watched that and I think... But through that, they were so busy that there was no time to talk about feelings. There was no time to, you know, if you got hurt, too bad. If you felt something, no one talked to you about that. But then that was an era time, you know, time of the, Mm. an era where, you know, feelings weren't discussed or, you know, how are you feeling today? Well, that was never part of our, 
our vocabulary. Um, my family would sit around at the dinner table talking about sheep or talking about farming and I was so not interested. I didn't even know what sheep types we had, still don't today. You know, it was just not something, whereas if we sat around and talked about our, how you're feeling or about people's lives, I'd be in there like a shot, but it just never happened. And mm. this loneliness, I think, was always there, even though I had friends come to, you know, school friends come to visit or whatever, there was a loneliness. And um, there, when I went to boarding school, it was almost in my mind, I think, reaffirmed that I wasn't needed. Because you didn't send Because I was sent to boarding school, because it was never discussed why you were going. You just got sent. Went. I understand that now as an adult, you look back and you you know that that was the best thing that could have happened. Mm. I mean, one, because we didn't have a high school near us. I mean, I think our round trip, the closest town was a place called Karnama, and it was 80 to 90 kilometer round trip for us to go to school well of course you know that wasn't wasn't feasible um and yeah so going to school you know it was there was part of me i think that thought that i wasn't needed because my mum she couldn't show me love her her background she was a farmer's daughter as well growing up in noangara which is a a southern farming district and she was the youngest of, of four children and she was raised with, you know, it was, I mean, she had a beautiful mother, but, and her father was, you know, an absolute worker who, who just, yeah, it was all about farming. So her, I guess her, her, her conditioning was just that you work hard because mm. if you worked hard, you would get maybe some accolades or maybe approval or maybe attention. attention, exactly. So I think that's maybe what I was vying for, for my, for my and I, I always felt like I was a silly little girl. I didn't, I didn't ever take myself seriously. And yeah, going to boarding school was definitely that, you're not needed, you just, and I just got, I felt like I got plopped there. And I just cried and cried and cried. And I can remember sitting under this tree. I'd get pushed out of classrooms because I used to cry so much in the classroom that the teachers would put me outside because I was disturbing the class. And this happened for the first year of my year eight. So I was 12. And I would get pushed out of the classroom because they, they didn't like me crying. And I had no one to talk to. No one was interested. My friends, I think, probably thought, oh, what are you crying about? Like, I'm happy to be at boarding school. But I had this absolute pain of being there that I couldn't describe to anybody and couldn't, and I think I internalised that. Um, and, and food was in my comfort. So food right. was very much part of that, you know, yeah, that comfort for me. Awesome. Mm. So as we look forward over the next three to five years, where, where do you see yourself going from here? What does success look like for you? Um, oh, that, that is a pretty big question because somebody like me, um, I guess, definitely wants to make a difference. And I don't want to go back to the sort of the corporate world that I was in. Um, 
for me it's not just about making money even though I need I know that you need to make money to live but for me I've got to have that purpose sense of purpose um, and I see a very big gap in what I've learned here at Food Rescue is that there's so many people that do not know what to do with food fresh food um, so I like a lost skill Pardon? Almost like a lost skill. Well, it is. I mean, you're up against uh, fast food places, cheap mm. fast food places, McDonald's, Hungry Jacks. People can buy burgers for $1.50, I think. That's what I get told. Um, and, you know, if people doesn't, don't have a kitchen, of course, how do they cook fresh food? Um, but I think, I think we can, you know, for, to answer your question, I think for me it's, I'd like to be instrumental, success to me is, I'd like to be instrumental in connecting people to purpose. And if it's by food, I see that as a necessity. But if it's connecting them to purpose through making something, doing something for others, connecting them to being included and to be needed, then that to me would be success. That to me would be... Are you talking um, about people's individual purpose? Yeah, people just... You know, because when you're displaced or disadvantaged and or, and or homeless, you're feeling pretty shit about yourself. You know, mm. I, I have a son who, who is an addict and he feels pretty shit when he's at his worst. He doesn't he doesn't want to see me he doesn't want me to know that he's going through his tough times because he feels so bad about himself and he feels so that he's let me down and it's hard to bring the darkness to the light yeah and all I want to do is wrap myself as a mother as a nurturer I want to wrap myself around him but I know that that's not empowering him it's giving him love and I show him love through food so mm. He's housed and he's functioning. I leave food on his doorstep. I don't need to see him. I leave food on his doorstep. I, or if I'm texting, telling him I love him, telling him that, would you like a box of food? I'll go and buy him some food and I'll drop it off for him. And so that importance of connection through food, no matter what's happening in the rest of your life, and I suppose that's what I is recurring for me in my yes. life is feeling feeling love through food but also it's an opportunity to sit down and ask someone how they're going yeah um and it's, yeah it's interesting what you're saying earlier on about how people find a purpose to make and create yeah and i think there's a lot of lost skills that we will we're we're you know, we're living in a very fast environment where consumerism is at its height. Mm. Uh, we're replacing things at a rate of knots where um, something breaks, we throw it out. You know, back when I was growing up, you fix things. You mend a piece of clothing, you mend a pair of shoes, or you bend, you know, you certainly make food because you don't have shops and they didn't have very much in them anyway, but you, you grow your own food on your, on your farm or your land. Um, but I see that there's, 
you know, things are cheap. I mean, they're coming in from China. Uh, plastic this, plastic that. If it breaks, it gets thrown out. Um, it would be great to have that... that um, the idea, and it's like it's called a remakery in Scotland, actually, that mm. I'm very keen in uh, replicating here in Perth, is to have that remakery idea to ensure that people can learn the skills from our elders. What is it like to fix something? What is it like to fix a chair or fix a table, a leg off a table, um, or make something out of wood? What a beautiful skill. I mean, create. Oh, and I've got wonderful contacts in so many areas that. Um, is this is it all part of where you see things? Going yeah, I do. I do. You know, I think my time with food rescue is such as we know it. You know, I've done everything I think I've I've wanted to do. Um, I've got a little bit to go, um, definitely in the education food space, and that's just about to start in February. So I have a wonderful um, connection with a school that's probably on the lower end of the socio-economic scale. And I have a champion there who is a principal. And uh, we're gonna bring six of their family, their parents, um, who are food insecure. And we're gonna bring them here to Food Rescue and teach them really basic skills. Mm. Um, that will probably be the highlight of my career to know that this, these families can maybe go back to home and to know what it's like to taste a fresh salad or a beautifully partly steamed vegetable um, and just give them hopefully some confidence that they don't need to be scared um, and also to help them with the basic skill, uh, not just the skills but giving them utensils, yes. you know, giving them a little walk, giving yes. them a grater. A, a good peeler, mm. not a crappy little 20 cent peeler. I'm talking about a good peeler that they learn decent knife, decent chopping board. Beautiful skills of and putting on nice music. What it means to just not go and and, and um, I guess that, my, you know, because my I guess also my why is to I see children who are in this generational poverty. And they're never going to get out of it if they're not fed properly. I see people in jails, which is why I resonated with your your previous um, guest speaker, Renee. Um, when I was six, I said to my mother, when I grow up, I want to feed people that are in jail. I don't know why I knew this. Wow. I want to feed people in jail because I think they're angry because they're not getting good food. Now, I have no idea where that came from. But I had it in me, and um, if you go back to what you were saying about the people at Percy Farm that you're interacting with that are eating chico rolls and energy drinks, which are just full of sugary rubbish, and you think about the impact that has, and then and then if you continue to eat that and what that does to your attention, and then we have these things like attention deficit, etc., etc. You know, come back to a decent diet. Yeah, and and the impact that that's the, having the impact exactly, and seeing these so children, what you're saying about seeing these children who are living in generational poverty, their parents don't have any skills to cook because they were never taught, and I see these young children if they're ever going to get themselves out of generational poverty, 
they have to have a good brain. They have to have a fed brain. Mm. And they can't, you can't feed a brain on crap food. It's just impossible. Mm. I see people angry. Um, in fact, on the Food Rescue Facebook post recently, we were interviewing a homeless, um, a, a guy that was homeless, and um, he said to me, he loves getting our food, our fresh food, and it gets put out on a, on a table and they can choose. Mm. Now, because he's homeless, he doesn't have a kitchen, but he gets a lot of the food that we rescue from the cargo cart project, which is all this beautiful prepared food from the cafes that didn't sell. And he said to me, I notice a difference in my network of homeless people. He said, I absolutely see when they get given good food as opposed to crap food. If it's at McDonald's or it's constant fatty food or constant um, energy drinks or whatever it is that they get given, as opposed to really beautifully cooked fresh food or, or cooked food that's, that's nutritious, um, he said, I see a direct correlation. And he said, I know I'm a drunk. That's what I do because I'm bored. I'm bored because I've got nothing to do and I'm, I've got nothing to do because no one will employ me because of the way I look and the way I smell and I'm just a hopeless addict. Mm. But he said, and I'm past it, you know, he said, I'm never going to get out of this now. I'm in my 60s, I'm never going to get out of it and this is, my, this is my life. But he said, when I'm in my wellness and when I'm not doing what I'm doing, he said, I see my mental health improves dramatically. So I guess... I mean, I've known that intuitively. Yes. But to hear that all these years later. Yeah. And I think deep down, if everyone looks inside, everyone knows that to be true. Yeah. I mean, I think I've got a headache today because I had a really stressful day yesterday and I ate, you know, there is some sugary things that sit around here that have that rescued. We don't mean to rescue them because we're predominantly fresh food, but some of the stores chuck away their Turkish delights in a pack or their sugary biscuits, which are one-offs. And you were at it yesterday. And yes, and it's so funny this morning, I have not been able to beat this headache. And it's, I'm sure it's because of that. You know, so when I get stressed, I, I don't eat properly and I eat that, that piece of whatever it is. Or we do have some volunteers that bring in some little treats yeah. that, you know, that's what they eat because of that, they're of that it's, generation. It's fascinating how... Um, listening to you talk about when you're stressed you don't go for the things that feed you um, when your son is in a spot he doesn't come back to the thing that feeds him I love from mum I had another guest who had postnatal depression she said at the point you need the help the most is the point you'll least ask for it it's fascinating really yes and if if I had um, food that was in the fridge ready for me beautifully prepared I would eat I would much rather eat that I would eat that because I love fresh food but if it's not there and and I'm just running on adrenaline trying to fit in you know a 20 hour day into a 10 hour day uh, that's what I go for or I feel a sense I think there is another trigger for me and that is that self-worth I don't think that's. I, I don't think I've. There's still an element of Julie Broad that's got a lack of self worth. Interestingly, after everything 
you know... Uh, it probably spends all the way back to childhood. Yeah, the, but there's something. I'm not sure that it's so much my childhood or being that, that literally that point I was sent to boarding school, not feeling like I'm good enough to stay on the farm. But why do you want to get rid of me? Like, I, I'm a good girl. I do the cooking. I do the cleaning. I help my mum. I'm very... I thought I was a pretty good girl. So what is that about being sent away, I think, was my... Yeah, was was probably that little thing that niggles, niggles behind the scenes so, sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And, and then I, that self-worth comes out. And it's, yeah, yeah. But when I'm in this amazing, like I've really been looking after myself this year and I put on a lot of weight um, and I've lost 25 kilos and that has, and, which is interesting being in this business, you know, food rescue and everyone looks at me and goes, wow, you're eating all the, you're eating all the food. You know, I'm sure that they used to look at me and go, um, you know, it, you look and that's what you think. And I, I'm sure they would think that. You were eating everything before you give it to the charities. Um, but that was all about me not putting Julie first. Mm. You know, I'm so good at giving to everyone else. So, you know, I've, I've really um, found the most amazing functioning um, medical practitioner. He is a GP by trade, but he's really into mind, body and spirit. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, he's helped me this last year. Um, and he will help me this year just making sure that Julie feeds herself correctly because mm. uh, I can have all this feeds amazing herself, uh, feeds herself first. yeah exactly and I can do I can keep helping people until the day I die but there's no sense in that if I'm dead first yes. <laughs> yeah. indeed just a couple more questions about it. if you could um, if you could go back to the Actually, if you could go back to the Julie that was sent to boarding school and give that Julie a piece of advice, what would it be? Oh, gosh. That's a really hard one because they're, 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 I, I just can't imagine what advice... You mean as me now, Julie? Yes. Oh, and I still remember Mum's face. Honestly, that has just resonated something in me. I can still remember my Mum's face because my Mum wanted to come and take me out because she saw how fraught I was and distressed. And my Dad said, because he went to boarding school himself, whereas my Mum didn't, and my Dad said, we have to leave her there, it's for the good of her. And I overheard him saying this. And my mother, as a mother, said, but I can't leave her here, it's so distressed. So I think as an adult, explaining why I'm being sent to school. Mm. Like, I was so naive. I had no idea. I didn't have any... Um, I didn't have any preparedness for it. Pre is that the word? Yeah. yeah. I didn't... I wasn't prepared for it. I wasn't communicated as to why that was happening. I knew I was going, but I just didn't yeah. know why I was going. Um, so I'd, I'd possibly sit down and explain why, what the opportunities were. And the last two years of my school life, um, I became a leader. Um, I incre Just incredible last two years. Um, but unfortunately, my brother had a bad, bad car accident, a head injury accident 
just as I was about to do my mocks, mock leaving, which is, I don't know what it's called these days, but the, the, the exam is before you do your final exam. Yeah. And my brother had this bad car accident. So that turned our family upside down. But um, that's the advice I think I'd give is just to explain what, it, what it's all about. What is boarding school? What is it? You know, I'm still going to come home at, at holidays. So it's not like I'm never to go back to the farm. I think, yeah, that would be the most sensible advice. Indeed. And what's the best piece of advice you've received? <sighs> oh, <laughs> saying no. Saying no. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't take it up very often. But yeah, probably those closest to me would my partner definitely um, would say to me most often, Julie, when are you going to learn to say no? Um, I look at every, every time I get a phone call or every time I get a conversa- have a conversation with somebody uh, through anything to do with food rescue or outside of food rescue, um, I always look at it as an opportunity. And I never know where it's going to lead. So I always say yes. But there's, a, but there's a potential that I could burn myself out by doing it, which is why my voice sounds like it does, because I'm tired. But I just, I could be dead next week, you know. I just think, well, I just want to live. And I, I'm using a friend's, a friend's uh, thing to me the other day. She said, Julie, you only get one, one go at this. You really do. Just go for it. Go for it. And I, I was like... But I go for it all the time and then I get told by, by those closest to me to put the brakes on and say no and smell the roses. and um, But I don't know, it feels like there's just so much to do. And, you know, now that I'm closer to 60 than I am 50, I think, like, really close to 60, I'm thinking potential. I want to live to my 100. So I've got 40 more years. So I figured... You know, I've got a lot to do. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Julie, it's been absolutely fantastic talking to you. You've been super open, super honest, and and very engaging. I've really, really enjoyed it. Thank you very, very much. I'm pretty sure uh, my listeners who are listening to this will have enjoyed this as well. I'm sure they'll start to think about the food that they consume. Um, They'll think about... um, yeah, whether you, you know, the convenience of things, check out where your local um, corner store is and, um, you know, maybe buy a couple of pieces of ugly veg. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Not so much that you put Julie out of a, a, an influx of guy. Exactly. Um, yeah, WA Real is about real stories with real people. I certainly think we've done that today. Julie, thank you very much. That's a pleasure. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Bryn.